Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howard States. I'm Doug Howard. Together with my colleague, Dr. Christian Smart, he and I will be exploring the events of the day from a unique perspective. Won't you please join us for this podcast and the others to follow? Thank you very much. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howarth States. My name is Doug Howarth, and with me today is Dr. Christian Smart. Let me introduce Dr. Smart to you. Those of you who have not heard of him before, he's a PhD in mathematics, also done graduate work in computer science and economics has bachelor's degrees in economics and mathematics. He has won a dozen best paper awards at professional conferences on cost estimating, including seven overall best paper awards. Has 20 years experience in solving real world problems doing cost estimating, which in our vernacular is operations research analysis. And his professional interests include the applications of math to real world problems including risk management, cost estimating, machine learning, and data science. He likes to spend time with his young son, Miles, and playing tennis. And a little fun fact about Christian, his middle name is Boyd. So when you hit the 20-character limit that you see on many input screens, his name reads smart, Christian Boy. And Christian B. Smart showed up on an internet message board of funny names along with Benjamin R. Good and Johnny Walker. Uh, I've known Christian for about 20 years now. Uh, always been a big fan. Just recently decided to collaborate together. And so this is the beginning of that collaboration. And what we're going to do is talk about real world solutions to complicated problems and how the collective wisdom or the wisdom right now that seems to be prevailing isn't always the best way to solve a problem. We're going to see that there's several other ways to solve problems. And we're going to talk about our methods to use those techniques to solve those problems. So with that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Christian. Christian, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Uh, good after, good morning, Doug. Good afternoon. Um, this, I'm Christian Smart, as Doug said, and I'll tell you a little bit about Doug. Uh, Doug Doug has uh, a bachelor's degrees in economics and a minor in math, and he's done some graduate work in economics and business administration. He's also a, an award-winning paper writer, uh, multiple best paper awards at professional conferences on cost estimating, and he has published 13 peer-reviewed papers on four continents. Uh, part of the name for the podcast is Howard States, and that comes from uh, Doug's work in the field of multidimensional economics, which examines the linked dual states, what he calls Howarth states, of value and demand, any, of, any number of dimensions at the same time. So um, with his company, Multidimensional Economics, which he founded, he also patent uh, entitled multivariable, on multivariable regression analysis, which is software designed to break markets into four dimensions. He worked for 30 years at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, uh, where he headed the Stealth Fighter, worked on the, the uh, Stealth Fighter, the F-117A manufacturing. Uh, he was the program manager for that, and he retired at, as their head of parametric estimating. His professional interests include applications of 
four-dimensional, five-dimensional, and n-dimensional math to real-world problems. His latest paper is called a three-market, ten-dimensional trade. This includes some applications to uh, the stock market, as you can imagine, and financial markets. His personal interests include spending time with his family, running, lifting weights, and swimming. A couple of fun facts about Doug is he, he discovered multidimensional economics by watching his wife buying a washing machine. Uh, so maybe that's your analogy for that. It's maybe like a, that's how Newton discovered gravity when the apple hit him on the head. So <laughs> you discovered it. You discovered your uh, major discovery by uh, watching your wife buy a washing machine. Um, and he, he's made all his important discoveries after age 47. That's after he received his second kidney transplant and, and finally uh, cleared his brain of all the blood poisons that had plagued him for, for 30 years. So um, I've known uh, Doug for a long time and um, and uh, he's, he's a good uh, friend of mine and a colleague. And we've been discussing these, these professional uh, collaboration for a while. And I think we have some things in common in terms of we both question uh, the foundations of a lot of uh, things that are out there. Uh, there's a famous statement that's been attributed to a variety of people, including Mark Twain, uh, which is, uh, it's not what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you do know that just ain't so. Um, it's actually a, a humorist from around the same time as Mark Twain is the actual originator of that someone called Josh Billings is not as well known today as Mark Twain. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, uh, that intro there, uh, Christian. I really appreciate it. Yes. The, uh, the problem Christian and I have seen with a lot of uh, approaches to modern day problems is that they, they've relied very heavily on, tradition or, or older techniques to, to solve problems. And, and one of the things that we've seen is that those techniques, those foundations don't seem to be based on entirely rational thought in some cases. And so in the case of what, what now passes for modern economics, which also could be known as neoclassical economics, they have something known as the law of supply and demand, which most of you listening to this podcast will have heard before. It basically suggests that on a graph that would have quantity running from left to right, so zero would be at the start and it would go out to greater and greater quantities going to the right. And then price going up, so price starting at zero at the same place that quantity starts at zero, but price going up, that there would be a left to right downward sloping demand curve, which is one of the few concepts, but not the applications with which uh, multidimensional economics agrees with classical economics. But then there's the, the classic, well, classic in their thinking, upward sloping supply curve in which costs rise as quantities increase. And the fundamental beef that we have, I have with that is that if you take a look at that axis and again, quantity going from left to right, getting greater as you go to the right, prices going from bottom to top, going getting greater as you go up. Well, curve of that nature suggests that people get dumber the more often they do something. And I think we've all heard of the learning curve. Well, the learning curve is the one of the several missing links in modern economics. And so our, our goal with our company and, and 
this new field I discovered. Our goal is to educate people about the fact that learning happens. People get smarter. There's um, both learning in the people and the processes and, and a whole variety of areas in which that happens and costs fall over time. Kristen, you were adding some other pieces to that. I, I was looking primarily at the people and the, um, the techniques, but there's some other elements to that too, right? Yes. Um, you know, for example, one of the key foundations, like you said, you know, if you, if you only remember it, one thing from economics 101 is that this has supply curve slope upward and demand curve slope downward and the equilibrium where price is clear is where the, is that intersection. That's kind of the one thing that you remember and, and turn, you know, as, as you pointed out, half of that foundation is faulty, right? The, um, I, you really spurred my interest in this because um, uh, it's kind of a, a re re revelation. Uh, you know, I've been working in cost estimating for a long time. I uh, use learning curves for a long time, um, but had not put two and two together until you, you know, said, "Hey, there's a disconnect here between what we experience in in our work and what traditional economics has been saying." So I've also been looking into it and. You know, a lot of the, if you look at an economics textbook, if they give you any examples that relate to this, it's typically with agriculture. So uh, Paul Samuelson's textbook has an example, in one of his many editions uh, has an example where you, as you apply uh, more fertilizer, you get higher yields, but there's a diminishing marginal return. Uh, the, the supply curves come from an era when all the applications were based on agriculture. It was really before the manufacturing era. Uh, era. Um, but you know, once they once people started building production lines and and uh, companies like Boeing started building aircraft in large quantities, they realized that costs were decreasing as they produced more because of this learning phenomenon that is really nowhere in neoclassical economics. It is. Um, it is in this field called managerial economics. I ask a neighbor, a neighbor of mine is a retired economics professor and I ask him about this and asking about learning. And he uh, has a large uh, bookshelf in his office at home. And he, and I said, I looked at a couple of microeconomics textbooks that I have and I don't see anything about learning in there. And he, he said, Oh no, it's not in there. And he, he pulled a, a, a book from 1976 a textbook from 1976 off his shelf on managerial economics and, um, and it said it's in here. So he, he loaned me a copy of that. And actually there is a little bit in there. It says it's, uh, they actually mentioned that it's not really been treated very much in the uh, theoretical literature, um, but it needs more treatment. If you look at uh, managerial economics textbooks, more modern ones, you'll see it's learning is treated in there, but uh, it, it, it never has been integrated into neoclassical economics. They, they're really focused on um, marginal, you know, this, this idea of marginalism that as, uh, as you get more of something, you, it, it gets better, but it costs more to produce. You can produce more, but, but it, but it costs more, or as you get more, you get more satisfaction, but it's diminishing. This whole diminishing marginal uh, idea is, is key to economics, but it really doesn't work in practice. It, it, it works great in the sense that, uh, it allows you to use calculus because, you know, calculus is calculating uh, these derivatives, which is marginal, which is what these marginal costs are and those kinds of things. So that, that allows you to use calculus to you calculate marginal costs, you calculate marginal revenue, 
And that's how you maximize profit is where marginal costs and marginal revenue are. Um, the difference of those is maximized. So, you know, it's, it's a nice mathematical foundation, but unfortunately it doesn't work too well in practice. That's not the way that, uh, that manufacturing works. It seems to work in agriculture, but um, neoclassical economics is still stuck in the 19th century, uh, you know, agricultural focus. It's really, ag it's really an agricultural economics phenomenon. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Christian. And as you were saying that, um, it, it occurs to me that, I mean, what, I, I think everybody listening to, to the podcast, if you're, if you're an adult, you've been watching the trend of flat screen TVs and their prices over the last 20 years. What used to cost in this market $300 in the year 2000 now cost less than ten dollars in twenty twenty. That is to say, the three hundred dollars that would have it would have taken for you to buy an equivalent TV in two thousand now would take you nine dollars and ninety five cents. And so, what we've seen in in the television, flat screen TV, computers, cars to some extent, and planes, where they, they first discovered the learning phenomena, shipbuilding, we're seeing a very widespread cost reductions due to the fact that people have learned how to get the costs down. And back to Christian's other point about the marginal cost and marginal revenue, if you're only looking on a 2D plane, it, it turns out that, you, yeah, if you try to solve for where these two things become equal and then the cost starts to exceed the revenue, sure, you would stop at that point. But what if, and this is what we're going to want you to think about, ladies and gentlemen, is what if there are more dimensions at play than simply the quantity and the price. For instance, I'm looking at a computer monitor. It's got a certain number of pixels that it's displaying, and it's got a certain size that it's displaying, a certain refresh rate, and a certain blackness, and a certain warranty that goes with it, and durability. A whole bunch of factors that went into my decision to buy this particular machine. And what we found in government, Christian and I, is that uh, often in the government, they'll say, well, we're going to give you what it costs plus a certain percent. So the government's always worried about cost and, and rightfully so for many of the programs that they put up. I mean, you can't put up a rocket program without doing some sort of arrangement like that. But when it comes to something like a television set, when you and your significant other go out to buy it and you're looking at, say, a $400 television set, and you decide that you like that television set, that flat screen TV, what's convinced you to buy that is the features that I just mentioned to you, the number of pixels or the number of lines of resolution. Is it a 1K TV, a 4K, a 4K plus, an 8K TV? Did you manage to go all the way down to 720 if you could still find one? What, what is it that you're buying with respect to the number of lines of resolution? And what are you buying with respect to the screen size and a refresh rate? Is it going to flicker on you or is it going to be nicely refreshed? And all that stuff goes into your decision to buy it. The one thing that you didn't think about when you're buying that set is how much it costs the producer to make it. So if you're buying your $400 flat screen TV, 
You don't really care if it's costing the producer 360, which would be a nice number for the government because that would be about 10% or a little bit more. And they'd say, I'll give them 10 or 11%. You don't care if it costs the producer 360 to build it or 560. Say he hasn't figured out how to make it for less than the, uh, the price of it yet. He hasn't figured out how to get the cost down below price. You don't care if it costs them 560, 360. You don't care really if it costs them 10 bucks to make it. What you know is that that set's worth 400 bucks to you. And this gets into the whole idea of value. And, and value is a core element, a core missing element that's not seen in modern economics, but it is part and parcel of multidimensional economics. So um, when Christian relates that story about how I discovered this, that gets into watching my wife buy a washing machine. If you, if you look at, uh, there's an example in managerial economics textbook on learning, and they talk about Texas Instruments. And how did Texas Instruments, pro, you know, Texas Instruments kind of took over the calculator industry for a long time. And part of the reason they, they, they did that, well, the way they did that is they, uh, they were very aggressive in their pricing. You talk about, you know, price versus cost. Um, they they kind of looked ahead and they, they realized that, and then in their experience that they would, the prices would come down over time. So when they first started selling these calculators, they actually sold them below cost in order to help generate the market for it because they knew that eventually they would, they sold enough of these that the cost would come down and they would, they would make a healthy profit and, and they did. And so they've actually kind of calculated the learning curve. They calculate what their average price would be once they sold a certain number of units, they kind of predict did some sort of demand prediction and <clears throat> probably, you know, somewhat like what you're talking about in terms of value analysis, they calculate what they would eventually sell, you know, could, could produce these things for, price them very aggressively, and they took over the market as a result of that. So they did not price on the margin, they priced on the average, and they succeeded as a result. You also talked about uh, economics, uh, government systems. Um, when a government goes out and buys missiles, um, and they and they buy, you know, 50 or 100 a year, or they buy 100 tanks in a year, they they don't give the producer a markup on the the cost of the last unit produced. They give them a markup on the average. So really what happens in in the real world is prices are, are markups on average costs, not marginal costs. Yeah, and, and to your point there, what we discover when you're talking about the uh, example of the calculator, and, and you can pick a calculator in a market back in, say, the the 70s. I remember picking up one of the first calculators when I was going to school. I'm going to carbon date myself here. That would have been mid-70s. I remember the first calculator that came out that all it could do, I think, was add, subtract, multiply, divide. It might have been able to do a power function. might have been able to take a square root or something like that. I believe that calculator cost me $400. Of course, now to get something like that it's a free app on your phone or it's something included in your daily planner it, it costs less than a buck to, to actually buy something like that and the the thing ha- the thing of it is is that what when Christian's talking about how the the companies are are pricing these devices what they figured out in our vernacular Christian is that when they figure out what the price is going to fetch we call that a product demand curve as opposed to an overall demand curve. 
So the market for calculators would have all the HP calculators that were out there at the time and then the competitors to the HP, which, gee, I've forgotten who they were back then. But so HP might have five models out there and each one of those products has an individual product demand curve, which is based on the the value of the calculator going over in, in the value space. And then after you figure out what the calculator is worth, based on that, sometimes a quantity term comes up in what we call a value calculation. And when you can figure out what the demand is for an individual product, then you, you're able to create a, a product demand curve. One of the best examples in the literature, and you'll see it in several of my papers, and this exists from 1974, a pair of researchers, Abernathy and Ward, went out and started to study the cost and prices for the Ford Model T over its entire lifetime. In fact, I think, Christian, this actually predates uh, T.P. Wright's work because this was done. Didn't T.P. Wright come around about 1930? Yes, in the 30s, yeah, with the aircraft, yes, yeah. Well, I don't know if T.P. Wright actually ever saw this from Ford. He would have loved it, but this would have actually proved the point. And in fact, the what 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 they discovered there was is that the the cost at a certain point started to fall in a, in a predictable fashion for over 10 million units. I think nearly 15 to 17 millions to the Ford Model T. At the same time, the prices are falling because the, the market was getting saturated. So in order to get new buyers, you're going to have to drop the price. And so the costs were below the prices, the price curve, but the price curve was coming down at a steeper angle. And at a certain point when the costs rose up to make, to um, meet the prices or as they both fell and they intersected at a point, at that point costs exceeded prices and the program stopped. They stopped making the Ford Model T at that point. So in <clears throat> modern economics, they talk about an equilibrium where supply hits demand and that's the equilibrium point and they imagine that is static for a while and that that's where the market stays but in multi-dimensional economics when costs equal prices if the curve is going if the cost curve is going up or i should say it's not is not falling at the same rate that the price curve is and that is to say the cost will exceed the prices at a certain point that's an equilibrium, and that's when the program starts. Now, sometimes at the beginning, back to Christian's original point, an outfit such as HP is actually producing the product at a cost greater than its price. Now, what they're relying on at that point is that the cost curve is going to fall more quickly than the demand curve, and that at a certain point, the cost will fall below the price and they'll start to make a profit. And when the cost intercepts the price at the beginning of a program or near the beginning of the program in multidimensional economics, we call that the break even point, but throwing this, this same concept back to the equilibrium, back to the classical economic economists, the, the point at which cost and price equal each other might be a break even point at the beginning and a end of program point at the, at the end. And I've never seen this entertained anywhere except the emerging field of multidimensional economics. That's so, a good insight. Yeah. And 
what happens here, thank you, Christian, what happens here, and I'll get to the story of my, my wife buying this washing machine. So again, I've got my, my degree, my bachelor's degree in economics, and I was out wash, watching my wife buy a washing machine with, my, with me one day at a big box appliance store. And we had been told by our cousin Carlos not to get one that had a was was not a top loader, get a front loader, he said, because he used less water. So that was, it came in and we see, we immediately exclude all the top loaders. We go to the front loaders. I go, okay. And then my wife says, well, you know, the one we have at home is kind of small. I want a bigger capacity than the one we have at home. You, you measured that, right? I go, yeah. She goes, is this one bigger than that one? I go, yeah. And I started to think about capacity. And I thought to myself, well, capacity, that's a, that could be a continuous variable. And then she says, you know, we don't have too many cycles at home on the, on the current machine. It's only got one cycle for gentlemen. I, I want to have uh, more cycles. This one's got more cycles too. And I said, cycles. Well, that's an integer, but, you know, I could treat it like a, a continuous variable. And we're looking a little bit further and she says, wow, you know, the one we have at home doesn't have this big pedestal underneath it. We could actually put the washing machine up on a pedestal. Then I wouldn't have to reach over so far to pull the clothes out. I'd like that. I thought to myself, well, that's a, that's a step function in mathematics. That's a step function with a literal step in it. And so I see the one that she likes, and then I see its big brother, its companion model, just up the, uh, up the aisle there. It's the same brand, a little bit bigger. I go, and more expensive. And I said, honey, what about this one? She says, it costs too much. We can't afford it. And what occurred to me at that point in time was that she was juggling these four and five variables in her head at the same, all at the same time, and she was coming up with a solution. And I looked around this electronics appliance store, and I said to myself, what if everybody's doing this? And then I asked myself, do I do this? And I go, yeah. And I looked around the store a little bit more, and I said, well, what if everybody's doing this in a mathematically descriptable way? And... um something that we could describe with mathematics. And my, my research shows that we can describe how markets behave using these, these value variables and the, and the cost and demand variables that we've seen. And that, that's what multidimensional economics is. It's the study of that. So we, we're going to look at how this impacts decision-making. I'm going to turn this over to you and, and pick up an example where you thought decision-making was flawed and that your risk analysis would show how you could have ameliorated a problem by you know, importing some risk. For example, so, you've worked so here's in space a, programs quite, quite a bit. Maybe you could talk about the O-ring with, with NASA or something back there. Yeah, so, the well, well, here's, a, here's this an example of that, something that kind of spurred my uh, research in risk analysis to a large extent was – Around the year 2000, um, there was a lot of discussion. So a little bit of background on this, on, on why risk is important for government s- systems is um, since the 1960s or 1970s, the average cost overrun, so which is the difference between what the government plans to spend up front and then what they actually spend, has been on average in a 50% increase. So if they plan to spend a hundred million dollars, then on average they would um, spend. And that, this is an average mean. So um, 
on average, they would spend 150 million rather than 100 million. So there would be this growth. And this causes a variety of problems when these growth happens. If you don't have the resources then to, to pay for these overruns, then uh, the schedule will have to move to the right or potentially the program get canceled and all that work could largely go to waste. Um, so there's a variety of impacts that happen there. Um, you know, it's the government's not going to go out of business. They're not making a profit or loss, but it does slow things down. It does make it's a waste of taxpayer dollars and to not plan these things properly. So uh, this this is actually a big problem in the government, and just a little bit of planning can go a long way. Um, so one thing that kind of spurred my interest in this to some extent was uh, I was already working on this to some extent, but if you really go back and look at well, one way to um, try to put in some reserves, you know, so if you, if you realize you're going to cost potentially grow and they are likely to grow to some extent because uh, NASA, for example, is pushing the state of the art. I mean, they're, they're launching new satellites because they're doing new things, things that have never been done before. They're advancing science. So these, this is technologically challenging and that's, and you want it to be, so it's just rocket science for a reason and rocket science is hard. So they, um, so it's, it's, there likely will be some growth. And so they looked at ways that they could, could put in some reserves. And an old method that was done for a long time was just take whatever the number was and add 20% to it. Well, that's still not going to really cut it because uh, you're still going to have quite a bit of overruns beyond that. So they started looking at different ways to do that. And the Department of Defense started looking at that problem too because they have the exact same issue. Regardless regardless of whether you look at NASA or DOD, the average is around 50%. It's been that way since the seventies and it continues today. Um, but they started looking at around the year 2000, they started looking at, okay, maybe we should fund to a higher level. And they, one of the things that they looked at was um, what is, what if we fund to a level so that the probability of an overrun is only 20%. So that would be a, what we call an 80% confidence level not to be confused with statistical confidence intervals. It just means we're have an 80% probability that we will, that we won't overrun our budget. So they started, people started talking about that and advocating that. And even they put some congressional language forth in the late 2000s, which said, you're either going to fund to an 80% confidence level, or you're going to explain why not, uh, which didn't really go over. But around that same time, people were doing some analysis and they said, oh, well, you know, if you, if you make some assumptions and, and uh, an analyst came up with an example that got a lot of press, which was that um, if, you, if, you, if, you know, if you fund to around a 60% confidence level and then you were to add together 10 programs and everything happens to be normally distributed and, you know, you have these small variations, then the overall portfolio confidence level would be 80% confidence level. So you could, it's what they call a portfolio effect. And something about that did not seem to sit right to, you know, sit right with me. It didn't, it didn't seem to compute intuitively. Um, so I started doing some research on it and, and, and digging into it. And um, there were a lot of issues with, with those assumptions that were in that, which one of which was uh, limited variation. Well, when you're growing 50% on average, you're going to have a lot of variation in cost. So that was one assumption that's kind of out the window. Another one is this assumption of what they call a normal distribution, which if you take statistics 101, the, the standard probability distribution everyone encounters is called the normal distribution. And it's uh, 
invented by a variety of people around the turn of the 19th century, including Gauss. Um, Gauss was one of the first people that actually wrote the equation for it. And it, 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 it covers a lot of phenomenon that you see in nature, heights of people, ages. Works really well in life insurance um, because, you know, you see people, you know, the average life expectancy is, you know, around 70 to 80 years, somewhere in that time frame. But you don't see people living to, to 200 years. Uh, so there's not that much variation. But if you look at the cost of a program, you could have, you come in on budget, you could grow by a factor of two, which happens actually a large amount of time. It, it happens at one out of six programs, more than doubles in costs from the initial plan. Or you could go by multiple of 10, which James Webb Space Telescope, which wow. is next generation telescope is kind of on the verge of, of passing that. And there are some other yes. programs I've seen that have uh, grown by a factor of 10. So you, you see more extreme variation in costs. So that's another thing that kind of kills that. And really the, this idea of what they call a portfolio effect is, is really mythical. It's, um, it's a nice theoretical construct. It works on some very simple examples that don't apply to the real world most of the time. So uh, I call it uh, the, uh, Milton Friedman, a famous economist, said there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and it's kind of, uh, that's, that's, that's kind of what the portfolio effect is. It's kind of the idea of a free lunch. And there, and there is no free lunch. So there is no portfolio effect. That's, that's one of the uh, one of my contributions in, in risk analysis uh, research was showing that there really is no portfolio effect when it comes to risk analysis of uh, government weapons projects and aerospace programs. Hey, Christian, um, you know, when it comes to the portfolio effect, wasn't that part of the big problem that we had in 2000? Eight nine, where the the stock market crashed basically because many many companies started to assume a portfolio effect for poor loans that would somehow be magically transformed into a good overall package because they had distributed risk. But the the fact of the matter was that the risk was almost uniformly poor throughout the entire package. Isn't that uh, isn't that part of what happened there? Yes, yeah, so there's uh, there's a variety of factors that were in part of that, but but uh, a key part of that and what was uh, used. Uh, so that's a, a, another good example. And Ty talked about you know how life insurance is you know is just kind of follow these nice uh, neat distributions like the normal distribution, uh, whereas financial risks like uh, mortgage risk and other financial risk financial risk for uh, weapon systems and aerospace programs do not, did not behave as well. They have a fat and, tail in your vernacular. Isn't that what yes, they have? Yes, they have a heavy tail or fat tail. So there's lots of risks out in the tail. Um, in the, know, on the high end cost part of the tail, not the low on, end part. On, on the because, high end, right. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so it's kind of a problem of entropy to some extent. There's only so much that can go right with these programs. There, there's some opportunities to say, but these are very complex, uh, you know, uh, programs. So but many things can go wrong. So there's a lot, lot of upside. These things are skewed. There's a lot of upside for growth, but very limited downside for opportunities. So there's um, massive, massive risk for, for growth. But um, and financial risks, to some extent, are, are even worse than what you see with government programs. At least government programs, you can, if they get too far out of control, you can cancel them. They can, you know, there's some human control. But you know, things that go on Wall Street, like mortgage risks, if things start defaulting, there's no way to 
just like suddenly stop all that. So, uh, so it's even it's even worse. It's even more extreme. But you see, you see, there's a variety of reasons. So, if you look at the life insurance industry and things are all behave, there was actually a tool that was developed for mortgage risk analysis that uh, and used in the financial industry that came from the life insurance industry, and it was uh, uh, something called a, a copula. And I won't get too much in the math of that, but basically it's just a way of coupling things, and it really depends upon this phenomenon called correlation, um, which takes into account the fact that when when one thing uh, zigs and other things tends to tends to zig rather than zag, they're, they're positively correlated. So these risks are positively correlated with each other. But what that does not take into account is the likelihood of extreme events to occur together. So um, it, it doesn't like a hurricane and a flood or something, right? A hurricane and a flood, or you know, like all the markets going bad at once. It doesn't, right. you know, it doesn't take into account the fact that that all your, you know, you can have this sudden run. Uh, and the sudden big, large default in these subprime mortgages. So uh, it doesn't take into account the extreme events moving together. And so that, that formula, which kind of came over from the life insurance market and worked very well there, was brought over. And it's, it was sometimes called the formula that killed Wall Street. Wow. Uh, because, because of that, because of the kind of the misuse. Uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, who is, uh, you know, the author of The Black Swan, he, you know, he likens it to... Uh, an airline pilot. An airline pilot uh, has a faulty altimeter, he'll crash the plane. You know, his faulty instruments, he'll crash the plane. If he has nothing at all, he'll at least look out the window, you know, which <laughs> on a clear day is maybe helpful. On a cloudy day, you, you still need instruments. So, uh, you know, you, you sometimes, sometimes these tools are worse than having nothing at all. You know, uh, you didn't used to see these kinds of events happen back when there were no, uh, quantitative analyses uh, we need these quantitative analyses but we need to have a healthy dose of skepticism about the way they're applied because they there were a variety of issues in it including what i've talked about there's also they only looked at about five years of data so there had never been any defaults in the previous five years uh you know a very small amount of defaults so the data looked great the model and the models fit the data great because they only but, but they only looked at a very rosy scenario so there was also an issue of of uh you know, the data set that they use wasn't representative of what the future was going to, you know, could be or what, what was going to happen. Well, interestingly, when you talk about data sets, now somebody, I, I've, I've got my uh, LinkedIn account that you can find, find me on Douglas Howarth at LinkedIn.com. And, and somebody challenged me on the, and you've seen this before, Christian, I've created a, or discovered rather, I didn't create it. I drew the, product demand curve for fire bomber and attack aircraft over a 60 year period. And somebody said, well, you can't draw it for a 60 year period because there's too much variability. And, you know, at first glance you would think, oh, look at a stock market. It's got a lot of variable variability in 60, 60 years. But what I was talking about is, is demand limit, an outer boundary arranged by beyond which you can't, venture too far because there is, a, as Christian said, a distribution. You can't assume that you're going to have the equivalent of a 12-foot a man walk into a, into a market. They just don't exist. That, that is to say you can't be, you know, five standard errors away from where the rest of the data is. <clears throat> and it works out that the curve that describes these fighter, bomber, and attack aircraft actually predicted the fact that the B-2 bomber that started out at 132 units 
could never make that number of units. That was how much that was limited by the number of dollars that Congress had back to Christian's original point. Once the program started, you may not cancel it, but you could sure as heck come back to quantity. The same thing happened for the B, the F-22 fighter from Lockheed Martin. And we're starting to see the, this phenomena creep into commercial aerospace. Uh, the Concorde, maybe you remember the Concorde was predicted to have 200 to 300 units sold, but somebody never bothered to look at the demand limit, which we call the demand frontier, multidimensional economics. And the same problem has befallen the A380. They wanted a market for several hundred of their vehicles, and they've only sold a little bit more than 200. They're going to lose, by my estimation, somewhere between 5 and 15 billion euros on this program. So these are real phenomena that we're looking at. So, um, Christian, I think we ought to save some stuff for next time. Um, you want to try to sum up where we're going to go and where we're going to what we've seen, where we're going to go, so we can uh, tell other people what we what to expect in future podcasts from us. Yes, yeah, so I think you kind of gotten a little bit of a flavor of of kind of our, our thinking on this. We we uh, there, we've noticed there's a lot of issues with um, the, with the foundations. You know, like uh, uh, Jimmy Savage was a uh, famous statistician, and uh, he wrote a well-known book. Uh, and he also did, did a lot of work in Bayesian. He's also a promoter of Bayesian statistics, which is now very popular, but at the time was somewhat controversial. And he wrote a book called the foundations of statistics. Um, and he said that, you know, a lot of times you would think that just discussing the foundation should be fairly straightforward, but actually it's one of the most controversial things you can do is, as we've seen, uh, some of these foundations are pretty shaky. If you look at economics, the supply curve, um, uh, if you look at risk analysis, the idea of a portfolio effect, the idea also, just looking at confidence level is is very is actually uh, very shaky as well because it there are these risks out in the right tail that are very large and that doesn't tell you anything about those. So uh, there's a lot of things, you know, kind of unconventional wisdom that, that we're going to talk about in, in these podcasts. That uh, issues that we found with uh, a variety of different things, both in economics, risk analysis, uh, that, that I think we'll I think you'll find very enlightening and um, We'll try to make it fun and educational as well. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Christian. I appreciate our audience's time. And we'll join us again next time when we have more on smart remarks and Howard states. Thank you and good night. Smart remarks, Howard states. is brought to you by Me Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You'll follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at, at me4d, and you can follow me personally on Twitter at, at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>